This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. People outside the yeshivas, okay. particularly because they're... Okay. One thing okay. for the lead, you know, the big time, the Chum and the Eluyim, and in small towns, they seem to be far from most of Klai Yisrael. So, uh, Moshe asked the question how yeshivas impacted the communities if they were so distant and so on. And very good question, very good point. Its first impact was A, it provided a certain homogenous uh, mindset for the Klee Kodesh. And we'll speak about it when we get to Velazhin. In other words, in other words, when each town had its, when every rub learned on his own, every every place was its own place. But slowly, as the yeshivas began producing people that lived in communities, were balabatim, most of them ended up somehow. There was a certain mindset and understanding of halacha. In, in, in not as being a collection of minhagim and you could do this, do this, but a, a keen understanding of how things work, a kipedin halacha, a certain mindset in terms of ashkafa, that began to disseminate. Lehavdal, just like ideas start in a university circle and then people write books about it and then, then people talk about it and the ideas slowly infiltrate and overtake. It was similar to that. You you created people that had a certain common, even before the Muslim movement, a certain common sense of things, and that slowly began to um, to uh, overtake things and so on. And um, I also wanted, I forgot, I want to recommend a book, um, a fascinating book that was written. It just came out about two years ago. It's called Kitsur Chalamish, or Kitsur Chalamish. Um, it was written by somebody named Bensin Kublianski. Bensin Kublianski is of Litvish. I, I don't know if he was born in Lita. Could, could be he was still born in Lita, but his father certainly grew up in Lita, and his grandfather was a Hashra person. He himself is from. He is a historian, and he moonlights in the Shinbet. I'm not sure which one moonlights and which one doesn't, but I'm upon him. And he and he wrote a book, a historical work, on the yeshivas between the wars. It's it's as it's a pure what's the right word for it? It's objective documentary. Fascinating. How many Talmudim each one had it every year? And when they started, when they broke up, when they returned, and specific issues in each place. And the different, um, the, 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 the different styles, very, very matter-of-fact, documented. It's, it's a generally, it's positive with no, it's, 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 it's meant to be simply that. It's amazingly good work by somebody who understood, sort of understands where it's coming from and did his research. So it's in Hebrew and if anybody wants to have something that's a great resource book, he has it. He has every fact and figure that there is and, and gives very objective tracing of the facts and figures. Really amazing work. Yeah. You want to ask a question? Yeah. Hold on. Thank you. What was the reason? No, I'll put it on. Um, 
But what was the reason for Pipeline to start this year? What was wrong with the old system? Mr. Shemar will be Belajan tomorrow, we'll speak about it. He put out a letter. It seemed as if the old style where anybody that not to learn would simply put himself into a base medish and sit learn himself, go to a big rav and learn and do personal type of shimush. He felt that that was going down the tubes. It was not happening. That's what he writes. Um, the, 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 the whole era of Reformation, you're talking about the end of the 1700s, late 100s, the, the idea of different different winds blowing started then, he doesn't mention that. So I would assume a the lack of, it used to be that anyone who was of stature, who was smart enough and driven enough, would, would make Tomatera his life and he'd become a parosh was stopping and he needed to have a conglomeration of people together. That seems to be from what he writes and from history. What changes... Um, the, the yeshiva world, um, going back further, we had yeshivas. Uh, Talmud Bavli was... Uh, there was yeshivas for hundreds of years. When did it stop? Why? And what difference with that system and the new, the new yeshiva system? So, so it's oh, I mean, it's different periods of times. The, the yeshivas that we had in the famous three yeshivas in, in um, we'll call it the West, North, Northwest Africa, Maghreb, um, and in Iraq, were sort of conglomerations of the big Talmud Chachamim. They, they were more than what we call a yeshiva today. They were kind of the pillars of the community as well, and um, they were covered in Hagim and so on. We don't know all that much about those yeshivas, and all we know is that when things started in Europe, when life started coming in, in Ashkenaz Europe, and in Spain for that matter, we don't have records of real yeshivas. We have yeshivas, like I said, the Marshal, for instance, Marshal. They, they, it was personal yeshivas. People came there, and, and he had me them. But, but it's changed and, and it sort of dissipated and I guess our high Belgian felt that that style is not going to work anymore. It, it depended very much on grassroots driven. Somebody had to want to come and learn by the marshal. Somebody had to come and want to learn by the marshal or wherever it was. Um, you, but in, and this was I guess falling apart, not happening anymore, and that's why that's why you make the lashon. She would mention that, that they were miles and frustrations of three different folks. She would elaborate on what some of those were. Kehillah, let's go slow. Let's start with the Kehillah, which was really the the um, that was the old school of of, of um, what was the Kehillah was extremely strong, and the Kehillah was able to enforce a Yiddishkeit amongst its members because the Kehillah had an internal wall and external wall. 
the, the world outside you didn't want you, and the world inside didn't let you in unless you, you met the killer standards. The problem with the killer standards were, A, once cities started becoming big, and you had two killers, five killers, a thousand killers, it's meaningless. If I don't like what to do in one show, I go to the other show, if they don't like what they do there, I make my own show. And it became, in New York, you can't, none of the Kahila things, a Besden is a meaningless entity in New York, unless both sides are committed totally to keeping them stuck. Because what sanction are you going to bring somebody? You're not going to let them down in bubble and go to bubble 45. Now that I go to 45, that I'm going to 54. I'll make But what's the difference? So, 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 so one, with the, with the coming of big cities, two, if a community needed a clear distinction between the Rav was a big Talmud Chacham and everybody else was not at all. When, when yeshivas, once people get more educated, the, the years are covered for the Rav, the distance became less. And the male the sense of Yira was was much less. America, where the sense the sense of central authority is much less. You grow up on a diet of we don't listen to what the king tells us. Everybody makes a decision. That 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 mentally and culturally makes tremendous inroads on a Kahila system. It also means people live with amaranzas. There's no difference to him between singing and Ireland to saying Krishna. Both of them are, are on the are on the agenda. He has no way of being mafchim between Tafel, Iker, and so on. It's the, the Rav says you have to sit in your seat then the Yigdal, so I, I guess Yigdal is important. And the Rav says you have to come for Krishna. I guess Krishna is important. But but but, it, but but they have no internal sense of things. World War One destroyed the Kehillas, and because they became disbanded, Sephardi Jews, when they came back to Israel, they had no Kehillah left, and that's where Kehillahs suffer terribly. The advantage is, for day-to-day -day life of, of from people who are not sitting in Kolo, Kehillahs are indispensable, and on the other hand, they, they, they're not alone enough to, to run something. Hasidus, the advantage is, A, the intense emotional attachment. Emotional attachment is very, very strong. It offers a perspective on life that goes beyond the Kailu years and Yeshiva years. It offers a very cohesive community that transcends geography. So, so, uh, and they can do things with that. Gary Rebbe, all the Dailu, quote unquote, said everybody should leave Yishlai and back to expense and it should move out. So there's plenty of concurrence printed and articles written and nobody moved out. Gary Rebbe decided he should move out. A guy came in and said, he became a chassan, Rebbe said, Mazel Tov, you're living in Ashdod. Second guy walked in, I'm a chassan, Mazel Tov, you're living in Arad. Third guy was living in Hatsur, and, and so on, and that was, and that, that's how it started. You, you don't have that cohesive business strength. The flip side of it is, there's no drive to become a personal goal. There's no drive to realize yourself in, in, in learning. It's, it's you know, even if you're very bright and you have the ability to become there is less of respect. I was once sitting at a Carolina Tisch, my brother was sitting at a Carolina Tisch, and um, what's his name was sitting there, the, the, the Rebbe was sitting there, the Rebbe was older, 16 years old at the time, and next to him was sitting at Markowitz, 
who was in his 80s and Rosh Shiva Karlin. And my brother here has one chassid. He has the other zugme, says zugme. The other one sits like Reb Nosidusta Markovich. The one sitting next to Reb, he's the Markovich guy. Um, there was a certain lack of um, looking up to uh, a Talmud Chacham. Not even, a, not even a, in, a, in a negative way, just that was the Mitzvah. And Bemele, you had, um, and, and Bemele, you had a lack of push for that. You also began to become counterproductive. With all due respect, when Satma has 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 Hasidim, so technically the Rebbe is aware of what everyone is doing all the time, but that's very technical. And in Gare, they have it divided with Commandant. But again, once people don't feel the personal cash of the Rebbe, at some point the numbers become impossible. Chabad was the anomaly because the Rebbe can do whatever he wanted, 100,000 is not doing it at any time. So, um, so you still had that, but there was a tremendous push to have that figure, you know, I mean, it was a very, very essential part of Hasidus. So Bimela, when the numbers became very big, you had that. And also emotional intensity becomes watered down. At the end of the day, the Tish also becomes Mrs. Nashville Modern. The Shiva system has its tremendous mile of endowing people individually with an understanding of what they're doing. It gives people something they can engage in totally. It, it, in many ways, as, as a full-time, you can, you can have an emotional high at a Tish, you can have an emotional high at Kessa, when you say Kedusha's Kessa, on Rosh Hashanah you can have emotional high in Cheshvin, and in, and, and in Shvat, and, and all these places. It's, it, the day-to-day learning activity is it's only Shaykh through learning. Those are its strengths. Um, it, it definitely builds people who you know, are supposed to use their Seichel and Das to, to decide things. Their flip side is, once you leave Kolo, there's a, a, a tremendous gap. You either feel that you're a failure, or you feel that you know you, it hasn't given you tools to meet life. It has its problems. It, it, the type of lifestyle you, you, you have in yeshiva, it's, it's the, everything about it. When you dive in, the homies you do, and so on, don't have much shaykhs with day-to-day activities. So it might be an extremely very good preparatory. It's like the difference between somebody who studies by apprenticeship like the good old days, you became a doctor by becoming an apprentice to a doctor versus somebody who goes to university. So it's very good when you have the strong theoretical understanding, but you can't go straight from university to practice on a patient. You need a lot of inter- internship. It, the yeshiva, it, 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 there's a big gap between the yeshiva, its world and its mentality and, and the practical day-to-day life that, that affect most people. Lithuania, Poland swallowed, Poland and Lithuania were talking. Poland and Lithuania were at no, they had no terms, no diplomatic terms. A big part of white Russia became incorporated into Poland. So, so everyone that went to Poland, everyone that tells in Kelm at that point was only from within Lithuania proper, nobody was traveling to those yeshivas? Um, 
they used a good old technique called smuggling, quarter smuggling. Um, it was very famous. There were two batikvaris that were split between Poland and Lithuania, and in towns on both sides, with people buried on both sides. So they they um, they allowed twice a year um, before your kibbutz and Sogidalis and Tishabov for people to go to the Vesakvaris on both sides to visit their relatives, and people could, uh, it could meet. And there were jokes about the incredible mortality rate. There were a hundred people buried in the cemetery, and about fifty thousand Kroyevim coming. <laughs> you know, it, it was one of the, it was one of those famous jokes. People would have to smuggle in. My father remembers people in Slavotka who were never were not sure if they would ever again see their parents. So anyone learning in the Litvish yeshivas proper, either. And came from Lita. I believe most didn't come from there, and and everyone had to find a way. You could go into a third country, you could smuggle the border, which was common practice, a little bit on the risky side, but it was still there. And that that was part of the tragedy that the shivas um, became uh, cut off from from where the most of the Jews were living actually. Some Gedalim that kind of never made it to yeshivas and stayed in the old fashion, or just learning in a basis of local Spanish. Um, like there were so and there was a change of Tukufis until let's say I just take a rough number until the early 1900s. The old fashioned not yeshivas were not the dominant force. You had people like. Riskarov, who learned by his father mostly, and he was learning with his father, he's Mikroshamish's father, he, uh, and they were very intent on keeping it only brisk. Chazanish was old school, he was a, a person who loved to learn from a young age. They didn't see a need to go to yeshivas. Um, you know, the, the, the yeshivas, you'd have to conform to something or other, but, the, but most of the people. Most of the people who were not going to yeshivas in those days never stayed from. Um, so by the time 1900 came around, uh, or so, a little bit afterwards, anyone who did not end up in a yeshiva did not end up from. The, the Chaznesh was an anomaly. You had people like Ramon Shafaisti, they, they were at some school for yeshiva. We'll speak about it before we get, we'll talk about the Lajan more. But um, it, it, practically speaking, you just didn't have anybody else. They, they, they were, yeshivas weren't, there was still the old school thought of how things should go and so on. Really, yeshiva operated along the same thing as modern schedules they have today? The answer is yes. No, the, 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 the answer is yes. First of all, the Benazmanim of Pesach was to go home for Pesach, and it was not easy to travel those days. It took a few days to travel. If you think you had a rough sitting four hours in Moscow airport, I mean, most people had to spend a few days traveling. It, it, it also was 
and and there were and the baby's running off half. It was extremely um, common for people to go for dacha and to breathe fresh air. People were, were really kind of very frail and weak. People didn't eat much. You have to understand something in a place like in Kletz. I mean, the first for a few, they were able to get meals. It was black bread and saccharine sweetened water for a while. Now, and that was that was considered to be okay. And and they came. They used to go to these farms and for for, for the for the for dacha, and they would have milk and eggs. In those days, if you lived on a farm, you had a lot of food and good food. If you lived in the city, you had black bread and uh, and saccharine. It really, you know. It, it, in bringing stuff to a city wasn't easy, so so people, it was it was very common. Everybody went out, sun, fresh air, and so on. That, so that was the, that was where it was. It was going for that. It wasn't made as fun as much as people needed to, to, to get a little fresh air and stuff. Litvin, Latvia, and Estonia were Baltic countries. They have histories going back way back when. They have their own language. Lithuanian is, very, is, 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 is and Latvian and Estonian are very different languages. Um, they they have their own people and culture, but they were always, you know, like I said before, in early history it started with tribes, kind of the small fiefdoms, slowly coalescing. But 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 they're very recognizable entities. Um, Lita and Latvia and Estonia very recognized entities. Um, Belarus much less. Belarus is part of a big swirl of Slavic, you know, you know, people. So less of a defined entity, to the best of my knowledge, culturally. Um, and that's why they were kind of Lithuanian, Estonia, Latvia. Even when they were under foreign domination, were very clearly defined. This place over here was like a. No, I was I was going to say that for me the easiest answer is to is the languages. If you go back a thousand years and you go to the origin of each country's language, you can see a connection between the two. For example, Ukrainian, Polish, and Belarusian, the three countries are next to each other, are very similar. And even though for hundreds of years uh, the Ukrainians were dominated by the Poles. The whole story that we're going to at some point have to say about the Tachvatat when Khmelnytsky wants uh, Ukraine to be Ukraine again and they go and fight the Poles. But these, th these three languages are very similar. So the Belarusian language was, was spoken by the people in the area of Belarus, um, which is the culture of these people as opposed to the going north over the border to Lithuania, where the Lithuanian language, which is very different, and they hold themselves as being a very different people. but. Saying that, these countries, for the majority of, of time, were either uh, Poland and then Russia, and, and they, there was this um, what what something that I would maybe focus on a bit more was to understand the amount of Yidden living in these countries and the the, the towns around us that dominantly were 50%, sometimes more, sometimes less Jewish. And the feeling that the, the 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 feeling that the Jews had, together with the Poles, together with the Lithuanians, because 
the, the, the Poles for, for hundreds of years felt that they were they'd been invaded by Russia and they were living in Poland, but they weren't in charge of their country. So you had this collaboration, this mutual respect, this mutual feeling between the Poles and the Jews that they are they are being dominated by the Tsar and they're, they're in the same they're in the same crisis. That's why after the First World War, when Poland becomes Poland again, and in cities, especially cities like Warsaw, which was a third Jewish. There's um, there's this very strange, you know. The, on the one hand, the Poles are anti-Semitic, and it's in their nature to hate us. On the other hand, we were in this together, and, and we fought together for independence, um, which is adds to the complexity of, of the area. But but the question was Belarus. Where does Belarus come from? It goes back to the tribes and the language. When the language of Belarusian came about, which is is still active today, the second language in the country. Every a uh, school child learns Belarusian and most of the people in the villages they speak Belarusian but most of the people in this country um, understand this dialect which is very similar to Polish that that defines uh, Belarusian as opposed to Lithuanian and Ukrainian Yeah. <laughs>